Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a study of the Gospel according to Mark. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Turn to Mark chapter 10. That's where we will begin this morning. We are in Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. I need to do just a little bit of house cleaning. I forgot to tell you one thing last week when I got home and listened to the recording of last week. I realized that I had left out one very interesting detail in talking about Hillel and Shammai. Remember them? We talked about them last week fairly extensively. For a while, the Sanhedrin was actually headed up by, the presiding elder was Hillel. After a while, his vice president, the person who presided under him, was Shammai. And then when Hillel died, Shammai became president of the uh, Sanhedrin. You may think to yourself at this moment, why is that interesting, Jim? Well, because when Shammai died, Hillel's grandson became the president of the Sanhedrin. And you all know him. You know his name. His name was Gamaliel. And Paul, when he listed his credits, talking about being a Hebrew of the Hebrews and talking about being a Pharisee, one of his credits was, he said, I studied at the feet of Gamaliel. And you may have wondered through all these years, why would Paul list him in particular? What's so special about him? Well, he was the grandson of Hillel, and that gives you some idea how much influence these Jewish rabbis had on the religion that the Jews were practicing when Jesus was on the planet, because even Paul lifted up that name of Gamaliel as a really special person. So I left that out last week, and I thought, oh, that's such a good detail. How did I miss that? So there, now you're all caught up. Tomorrow is Rosh Hashanah. Tomorrow is Feast of Trumpets for 2018. Now, you know, I don't set dates. I don't say when Jesus is going to come back. But I have a pretty good feel for when he's not going to. I look at the first four spring feasts, and I look at the way Jesus satisfied those. And so I am convinced that he has to satisfy the fall feasts in his return. Only because the Bible takes the time to say that he was the Passover lamb and that he was put in the grave on the first day of unleavened bread and that he rose on the beginning of first fruits, which was the following Sunday. And then 50 days later, Pentecost happened. The Feast of Weeks was satisfied. And he did all that during his first incarnation. But you can't find any such parallels to the fall feasts, Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Atonement, and then ultimately the Feast of Booths, which this last Wednesday we saw 
was going to be kept through the millennium. All the nations that came up to fight against Jerusalem are going to have to come up every year and keep that Feast of Tabernacles. So we find the fulfillment of that, but there's these two feasts. There's this Feast of Trumpets and this Feast of Atonement, and I just kind of wait to find out what the fulfillment is going to be. But when you read about the return of Christ, there's all this language about how he's going to come back with a trumpet. And Paul even says that the last trump, all of which is Feast of Trumpets language. So all I'm saying is, the only reason I bring it up this morning is that I don't know when Christ is going to be back, but tomorrow's good with me. That's all I'm getting at. If he decides tomorrow, Feast of Trumpets, he's going to come back. That, that's fine with me, but if he doesn't come back tomorrow... I suspect that it will be at least another year that we have to hang out before he comes back. Now, if he opts to come back in November for absolutely no connection or biblical reason that I can find, but if he chooses to come back in February, I'm okay with that. Come on back. But but tomorrow's Feast of Trumpets, and every year around this time, I get a little anxious, and I look up. And then by Tuesday, I will be seriously depressed. So you can call me on Tuesday and say, chin up, Jim. (laughs) We are in Mark 10. We are starting at verse 17. This is a story that you should be very familiar with. It's the story of the rich young ruler and his conversation with Jesus. And then Jesus is going to pose an impossibility in order to really understand what Jesus is going to say to the rich young ruler, though. I think we need to go back a couple chapters in Mark. Go back to Mark 4 for a second. Keep your finger there in Mark 10. Mark 4 is the parable of the sower and the seeds. And I just want to remind you of one thing that Jesus said when he was explaining the parable, starting at verse 13. He said, do you not understand this parable? And how will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word that has been sown in them. And in a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, but they have no firm root in themselves, but they are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. We can understand those two things. Yes, okay, persecution makes it difficult. In this lifetime, you have faith in Christ, and then the troubles of this world come, and it's hard to maintain faith sometimes in the midst of struggles and trials. But then notice the next thing that Jesus said. Starting at verse 18, he said, And others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. So what are the thorns that are going to choke away the word? These are the ones who have heard the word and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. 
and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Okay, turn back to Mark 10. Jesus is going to speak lovingly to a young man who has a great many things. And the deceitfulness of riches is in his mind, and it's what stops him from giving away everything and following Christ. Once again, Christ is going to make himself the center of the religious universe. Once again, Jesus is going to say, give up everything you have in this world. Come and follow me. And the young man just can't do it because he has great riches. And he just can't give up the world's riches to come follow Christ. So let's start reading at chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus was setting out on a journey, and as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher or good rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he wants something to do. Tell me what I do if I want to inherit Eternal life. Now, that's very common to Jewish thinking. That's very common to the Jewish mindset. Remember that the law and the 613 ordinances and rules are all about do stuff. So naturally, he would come to the good rabbi and say to him, what do I do? What do I do that will guarantee me that I'm going to have eternal life when I die? I think to this very day, people get caught in that trap. People think that Christianity is a series of do's and don'ts. And they want to know, they want some guarantee, they want some insurance policy that when they leave this planet, they're going to go to heaven eternally. Because then they can point at something They can say, I know I'm going to be saved. I know I'm going to heaven because after all, I did this. I fed the poor or I gave enough money or I I tithed to enough organizations or I I did what my pastor or my preacher told me or I never missed church or I, I made every Sabbath. Whatever the thing is, whatever the rule is. I didn't lie, I didn't kill, I didn't commit adultery, I didn't, I didn't do things and I did the right things and therefore I know that I'm going to heaven. Well, that was his mindset. What do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus is going to tell him something to do. And he can't do it. Jesus says, why do you call me good No one is good except God alone. The uh, cynics love to get a hold of that phrase. The atheists love to point out that it says, why do you call me good? In other words, Jesus was admitting that he's not good. And not only was he admitting that he's not good, he then said there's no one good except God. So he was admitting that he's not God. One of those two things they claim is obviously true because that's a quote from Jesus. He's not good or he's not God. I don't think that's what Jesus was getting at. I think the reason he said to him, 
why do you call me good? There is none good but God is because he wasn't allowing this young man the limited notion that he could only be good without being God. If you're going to admit that I'm good, go the rest of the way and admit that I'm God because only God is good and you admit I'm good. So go the rest of the way and admit that I am deity. I think that's what Jesus was getting at. And I think the cynics are wrong. I think the very fact that Jesus added that phrase. No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? It's like begging the question. It's like okay. So am I good? No one's good but God. You're admitting I'm God. You know the commandments. Verse 19. He says do not murder. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. So he left out the first three, but he went right to the stuff that people do when interacting with other people. And he said, you know these commandments, do these commandments. And the young man in great boldness says to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Check me. Dig me. I have done everything you just listed. So Jesus recognizes that this guy feels justified based on his doing. So Jesus is going to give him something to do that he just can't find it within himself to do. When he said, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up, Verse 21 says, and looking at him, Jesus felt, this is the NASB rendering, Jesus felt a love for him. It's that word agapao. He felt sacrificial love for him. In other words, Jesus saw that he really was trapped in his sense of justification and legalism, and Jesus had pity on him. And so Jesus tells him something that really will make a difference to him. As long as he's walking around thinking, commandments, Ten Commandments, Moses, that's me. I do that stuff. Then Jesus had compassion on him and said to him, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you possess. Give it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. How often have we seen Jesus say that? Follow me. His first apostles he walked up to and said, follow me. They immediately put down their nets. They immediately left their father Zebedee and they immediately followed him. That is an effectual call. When Jesus says, follow me, and they have no choice but to follow him, that's an effectual call. But here Jesus said, go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. This man couldn't do it. And then we're told by Mark specifically why he couldn't do it. Verse 22, but at these words, his face fell. And he went away grieved. Two things. Number one, went away. Jesus said, come with me, follow me. The young man goes away. Secondly, he goes away 
grieving because I think he's recognizing within himself that he can't give up his wealth. He can't give up his stuff. And here he's come to Jesus and said, good rabbi, tell me something to do so that I guarantee to myself that I have eternal life. And Jesus says, okay, here's something you can do. And he can't do it. And he leaves grieved over the fact that he can't do it. At these words, his face fell and he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. That's the NASB. It's basically he had a lot of stuff. He has great riches. He has great wealth. Apparently he or his parents or his grandparents have worked really hard to assemble all this stuff. It was impossible for him to let go of that stuff. So here's the very prince of life saying to him, I'll, I'll answer you. You want to know what to do? All that stuff that you have, that you have so much confidence in, all that stuff that defines who you are, that you're rich and you're young and you're a ruler and you're important and you're influential, give all that up. Give all that to the poor and make me your single primary focus in life. Now, if he had... Do you think he'd go through the rest of his life having enough? I think the answer is, of course. He'd go through the rest of his life having enough because he'd be with Jesus, who pulls money out of fish's mouths, who makes a little bit of bread and fish feed 3,000 and 5,000. He would have sufficient clothing. He would have shoes. He would have everything he needed. What he wouldn't have... <coughs> was the power, the authority, the wealth that defined him. So he couldn't give it up. Verse 23 says, And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Why is it going to be so difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Because, as was just demonstrated, those things, that wealth, those earthly goods, as he said in the parable of the soils, those wealthy things choke away the word. You become so tied to this earth. You become so tied to this planet and the wealth and the power and the, the notoriety of this planet that it's really hard to just give it up. Ultimately, what is the one sin that I keep saying is repeated over and over and over again in the Bible more frequently than any other sin? What is it? Pride, Pride vanity, ego. That's why he couldn't give it up. Couldn't give it up because all of that wealth, all of that stuff made him who he was. And to give all that up and to give it to the poor and to follow Jesus was to become essentially nothing. And he wasn't able to do that. He wasn't able to make Jesus the priority. Now, why? Why did this whole episode take place? Why did that all occur? Why did we just read it? Why do we know about it 2,000 years later? Well, I don't think ultimately it was about him because we're not even told who he was. 
We don't know much about him. I think it's about the conversation that's about to happen between Jesus and the disciples. Remember, Jesus was constantly teaching his apostles, constantly instructing them, constantly getting their minds right about who he was and what their relationship was to him. So that conversation begins with Jesus saying how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. He just took an entire class of people and said it's going to be really hard for them to enter the kingdom. And his disciples were amazed at his words. Why? Why would that be? Well, you have to get some sense of the Greco-Roman two-tier system. You know that in Rome 2,000 years ago, there wasn't a middle class the way we know it today. Pretty much everybody in this room would be middle class. Anybody here upper class? Because if you are, then I'm going to teach tithing this morning. No? We're good? We're all kind of middle class folks. Okay, well, there was no middle class in Rome. There was the upper class, the upper tier, and then there was the proletariat, the people who actually did the work. The people in the upper class had a great deal of free time, life more like luxury, and they had servants to do all the work. They had the proletariat. They had the lower classes to do all of the labor that allowed them to live a life of luxury. And so when you look at that society, you would assume that the rich people are the ones who have really got it made. You would think that they're the ones who God is actually blessing and taking care of. And then Jesus says, those that are rich, those are the ones that are going to have a hard time getting into the kingdom. You can see in that situation why his apostles would be amazed by that. Because their whole society says that the lower classes are nothing. But Jesus takes a shot at the upper classes and says it's going to be them that has a tough time getting into heaven. Not just a tough time, but in a moment he's going to say, it's impossible, which is true. It is impossible for anybody that is tied to this planet who loves the things of this world more than they love Christ. It is an absolute impossibility that they will suddenly change their mind and suddenly decide, I don't care about all this stuff that I've accumulated. I'm going to give it away to other people who didn't work for it. I'm going to give it away to the poor people, the people have need. And then I'm going to live impoverished so that someday I can be in heaven with Christ. Nobody ever makes that decision. Jesus says it's impossible. So the disciples were amazed at his words, says verse 24. But Jesus answered them again and said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it is. How tough it is. Now he took it out of the setting of if you have great riches. And he just went into the human condition and said how difficult it is to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the apostles have been traveling with him, listening to him teaching, seeing the miracles, seeing the demonstrations of who he is. 
And yet every time he tells them truly spiritual things, they don't get it. They don't understand. And they're the ones who walked and talked with him. And they don't get it. How tough is it then for us who don't walk and talk with him, who haven't seen the miracles, who weren't fed along with the 5,000, who don't pay our taxes out of fish's mouths, we who didn't see him rise from the dead, who don't see him sail off into the blue with the promise that he'll return. We didn't see him enveloped with clouds and go off into heaven. We didn't get any of that. How difficult is it for us when they didn't even get it? Well, now you can understand Jesus saying how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talked about the wide gate and the narrow gate. He made it real obvious that there's a wide road, a broad way that leads to destruction and many there be that go in thereat. But straight is the way, narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. So again, Jesus is making himself exclusive. He is not saying, I'm here on the planet for anybody that would like to participate. I'm here, I'm dying, and my death is going to cover all the sins of all the people, and anybody who wants to make me their Lord and Savior can, by their profession, obligate me to save them eternally. Jesus never speaks like that. Instead, he says things like this, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 25 it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I heard a preacher once on TV, fellow down in Texas, let's see, Hagee, do we know that name? Okay. I heard John Hagee one time say that what Jesus was referring to here was that along the wall in Jerusalem, there was a really small, very narrow gate that was known as the needle gate, and that in order to get your camel through the needle gate, you had to unload all the packs off the camel, and then you had to get the camel down on his knees, and then he had to crawl on his knees through that narrow gate, and that's what Jesus was describing when he said taking a camel through the eye of a needle, that to get through the I or the opening of the needle gate was really difficult, but apparently could be done if you unburden the camel and you got him to crawl on his knees. Apparently, you could get the camel through the eye of the needle. That is the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Because in a minute, he's going to say, with man, it is impossible. Can't happen. So I don't care how many crawling camels you take through how many narrow passageways. That's not what Jesus was saying. He was saying, literally, get yourself a dromedary and put him through the eye of a little needle you're holding in your hand. If you can't do that, then you can't of your own will, your own decision, your own determination, get yourself into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, how many people here want to try the camel thing? Get yourself a needle, 
and send a camel through the eye of the needle. This reminds me a lot of the book of Job, where God says, you know, if you could thunder and lightning like I do, and if you can glorify your own name the way I do, then I'll admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Well, okay, so God and Jesus talk this way. If you can't do the impossible stuff, then you can't get into heaven just because you're determined to. And I think this is in response to the rich young ruler coming and saying, show me what to do to guarantee that I'll have eternal life. I want to do something. And now Jesus has raised the level all the way to not only sell all your stuff and follow me, which the rich young ruler wasn't able to do, but now put a camel through the eye of a needle, which even his apostles are not able to do. Because Jesus is demonstrating the impossibility that man of his own will, of his own determination, can obligate God to save him. How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more taken aback, more astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? That's the question he was trying to get them to. That's the point he was trying to make. He wanted them to get to the point of, well, then, if it's so impossible, what chance do any of us have? How can any of us be saved? And look at Jesus' answer. With men, it is impossible. I don't care how many commandments you keep. I don't care how many of the 613 rules you keep. I don't care how perfectly you keep your religion. I don't care how good you are to other people or how many good deeds you do in this lifetime. Jesus said, when it comes to entering the kingdom of heaven, no amount of work on your part is going to rival the impossibility of camels through needles. And if you can't do that, you can't work your way into heaven. You can't work your way into eternity. You can't obligate God by your deeds because no amount of good deeds you do are going to be on the level of camels and needles. You get the impossibility? Now, if Jesus had just said, with men it is impossible, then you'd walk out of here depressed this morning. And for good reason. You'd walk out of here saying, I came to church to hear the good news, and Jim left me with, it's impossible. But look at the next line, because I love the next line. With men it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Amen. Okay, so can rich people be saved? Yes. Yeah, just not by their own effort. Because if it's going to be their own effort, Jesus is going to demand of them things they can't do. 
If it's left up to their effort, if it's left up to your work, if it's left up to your attempts, your power, your strength, your manhood, just do it. If it's left up to you at all, you're going to end up with directives and commands that you can't do. Here, I'll give you one. Be holy, because I'm holy. You're already in trouble. Sure, in this lifetime, we desire for our lives and behavior and thoughts to tend toward holiness. But if the perfect standard of holiness, which is God, is compared to you, how do you measure up? And yet there's the command, be holy. You're already stuck. You already can't do it. So what does that mean about you? That means that if the standard is the impossible standard, nobody has any hope. Because with men, it's impossible. But with God, thank God, everything's possible. Which means even wretched sinners like me can end up in glory, can end up standing before God fully redeemed, fully saved, fully forgiven, fully justified, fully righteousified, fully accepted by God, and then live in the eternal joy, the splendor, the bliss of God's own presence eternally? How can a wretch like me have any hope that that could be the case? Because... Not me. There's nothing in me. There's no value in me. There's no power in me. There's no ability in me that can get me to God. It's impossible, said Jesus. But with God, all things are possible. And by his grace, he can bring you into his presence. And by his son's finished work, he can forgive you eternally, justify you, and give you to his son as a spotless unblemished bride. Amen. With God, all things are possible. So the contrast is obvious. First, the man shows up who wants to do stuff. So Jesus gives him something to do, and he can't do it. And then the disciples say, well, then who's going to be saved? And Jesus answered, with men, that's just impossible. Men can't be saved, not after their own power, not after their own might, not after their own will, not after their own decision, and certainly not after their own work, because by their own work, they can't even do the impossible stuff, like drive camels through eyes of needles. Do you think, by the way, since Jesus said, if you had faith as much as a mustard seed, you could tell that mountain to remove itself and plant itself in the sea, and it would happen. Do you think if Jesus wanted to, he could make a camel that could go through the eye of a needle? Yes. Sure he could. Can you? No. No. And that's what he's driving at. The same way that he said to the rich young ruler, forget all the worldly stuff and follow me. Then the answer is across the board. Forget all the worldly stuff, which includes the stuff you think you're going to do to obligate God. Forget all that. Me, I'm the center of the religious universe. 
I am your salvation. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Come through me and suddenly everything becomes really, really possible. Camels through needles, mountains that move and plant themselves in the sea, and sinners who stand before God justified. All of those impossible things are possible with Christ. And yet there are people clinging to the impossible stuff of this world, thinking that that somehow is going to help them. So when you die, how much of your stuff do you take with you? None. So how does that help you? So Jesus makes himself the absolute priority in your spiritual life. They were even more astonished, says verse 26. And they said to him, then who can be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said, with men, it is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. So Peter then, having heard that whole conversation, having seen the rich young ruler who couldn't give up his wealth, Peter then, Mr. Sandal in Mouth, says to Jesus, well, now hang on, because we gave up everything. (laughs) Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. The very thing you told the rich young ruler to do Give up everything. Follow me. We did. We left our enterprise. We left our jobs. We left our homes. We left our families. We've come to be with you. So I think Peter in his own way is kind of saying, we're doing it. What do we get out of this? And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or farms, for my sake, and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, and mothers, and children, and farms, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. Now, if you are a prosperity preacher, if you are a name it, claim it kind of preacher, you're all over that verse. Because Jesus said, if you give up some stuff in this life, you get a hundredfold. Oh, well, gee, I want a hundredfold. Yeah, so I'll start giving stuff up. That verse used to plague me. Because Jesus said, you're going to receive a hundredfold in this life if you've given up for me. And look at the list. The list is across the board. Brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, farms. You give those up for my sake and for the gospel's sake, and then you're going to have a hundred times as much. Now, let me go on record as saying, I don't want a hundred times as many children. But I'd I'd be happy to have a hundred times as many houses or farms. I'm kind of content with the kids I have, was my point. Oh, okay. Did I bail out of that one okay? I'm safe, okay. I was really plagued by that verse because I think we would all agree that in our lifetimes, we have sacrificed, we have given up for the 
gospel's sake and for Christ's sake. But has anybody here in this lifetime received their hundredfold blessing back again? So I, I had to decide, what does Jesus mean? Why would he say, now, in this life, now, you're going to get it now? And he means right now in this life because he included and persecutions. He's not talking about someday in heaven because when we get to heaven, there's no more persecution. So he said, right now, in this present age, you're going to receive a hundredfold. And then I found the key. Notice when he said, you're going to receive a hundredfold. He left out one category. Do you see it? What's the one thing he left out? Say that again, Joni. He didn't say fathers. He said, if you give up fathers, mothers, but he didn't say you're going to gain a hundredfold fathers. You know why? You have one father. God is your father. Oh, so he's talking about that new Christian relationship that would bring about having a single father and persecutions in this world. Turn to Matthew 12 for a minute. Turn to Matthew 12, right around verse 48. Let's start at Matthew 12, verse 46. While Jesus was speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Okay, go back to Mark. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. Do you get what Jesus is saying? Mm -hmm. New relationships, new community, new family. I have brethren literally, genuinely all over the planet that I didn't have before. But I have them now. I have houses I can stay in now that if I just showed up and knocked on the door before I was a Christian and just said, hi, I want to stay with you, the people would quite rightly say, no, you stand out here while I call the cops. But I have people who write to me now and say, if you're ever in, I've had people say, if you're ever in London, if you're ever in Florida, if you're ever in any place, come stay with us. I had somebody just a couple weeks ago say, my house is your house. I think they meant it. I think that's the sort of fellowship, the kind of camaraderie, the kind of kindness that they would show to me. I know this. I know looking around this room, there's nobody in this room that could ever fail completely without us picking them up. Mm -hmm. 
We have a few folks here at the church who have struggled, and we provide. We take care of them. Nobody in this body goes hungry. Nobody in this body goes without clothes. Because we will provide for you because your family, your brothers, your sisters, you're the people we love. How many times in the course of GCA's life have I seen people through no prompting on my part reach out and take care of somebody else? I see it time and time and time again. Now, Tom knows because he handles the money. Tom knows how frequently we help folks. We just help them get along. We just make sure that they don't fall hungry or that they're not kicked out, that they're not homeless. I have Christian friends that are closer to me than some of my siblings. And you're all nodding at me because you all know that it's true. Can I talk about you, honey? Not you, honey. That honey. Karen said yes. <laughs> I'll be right back to you, sweetie. But um, <laughs> Look, I, I'm going to talk about my wife for just a moment. Honestly, think about her situation for a moment. Throw your hand up in the air if I'm embarrassing you at any point, and, and I'll continue. And <clears throat> she left the other side of the planet, and her reasoning, she told me, was, this is home. This is where the people are that she felt connected to, though she had never met you. She was on the other side of the planet and she wanted to be part of the community of faith that was in Smyrna, Tennessee. Little did she know she'd end up married to a goof like me. But we felt that. We have, we've had that sense. Why did Micah and April pack up from Ohio and move to Smyrna? Felt God's calling to be here. Yeah, this is family. This is, this is where your people are. If you haven't had that sense yet, I hope you get it soon. Why can any of you, and I mean this genuinely and sincerely, why can pretty much any of you show up unannounced at my house or the Young's house or probably at Micah's door or where's the other gathering place? There's, there's several places where people, oh, Ming's house. Oh, yeah. Why do they just show up? It's because they have plenty of houses that they can go to. Plenty of brethren, plenty of sisters, plenty of people who are their family. Once I saw it through that mindset, Jesus didn't mention many fathers. You're not going to get a hundredfold fathers because you've got one father, God. But because you're with God and you're part of the community of faith that is around Christ, suddenly in this lifetime, though you have persecutions, all the other stuff increases in your life. And if you think about it, that's true. That's why Josiah doesn't sit at home in his apartment. Right? I definitely take advantage of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Which of you, be honest with yourself, if one of us showed up at your house, which of you wouldn't feed them? 
See, no hands go up. Of course we'd feed them. You want anything to drink? You want anything? Can I take care of you? What do you need? If they said, I have no place to live right now, they would live with Leon, <laughs> which is happening right now. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus said, he will receive a hundredfold, now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, but in the age to come, eternal life. That's what the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus now instructs his apostles, it's all about me, follow me, be with me. In this lifetime, though you give stuff up, in this lifetime you're going to gain everything you need, brothers and sisters and food and clothing and houses, and everything here is going to be provided for you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, Jesus said. So the stuff is going to take care of itself. You concentrate on staying connected to Christ. And then you're going to receive. In this present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. One more thing. And then Jesus said to them, but many who are first will be last. In the last first. What does he mean? He's still talking about the rich young ruler. In that society, in that two-tiered system, that young man was very first. But because he couldn't follow Christ, he's going to be last. <coughs> but many people who are last in this lifetime are going to end up having eternal life and standing in the presence of God and being joint heirs with Christ in everything that Christ receives from the Father to glorify the Son. That makes you very, very first. Regardless of what happens in this lifetime, look, why do we assemble stuff for ourselves? Because we're competing with the rest of the world to try to be first. Have you ever seen that bumper sticker that says, uh, whoever dies with the most toys wins? Yeah, that, that's the basic theory of human life. Yeah, just assemble as much stuff as you can possibly get so that in the competition between you and everybody else on the planet, you win. You come in first based on look at how much I've got. I've got so much it made me important and influential, and people care about my opinion just based on what I've got. I'm first. Well, Jesus says, and that's going to make you last. But in this lifetime, if it turns out that you're never really important or influential, if it turns out that you never assemble this world's goods, if it turns out that you're just last in this world, you can still be first. By being with Christ, being in Christ, Christ in you. And not only will your life improve here on the planet in this age, even though you go through persecutions, but you'll end up first. Now, by the way, if he would 
say that association with him makes you first? Where's that place him? That puts him way, way, way first. That puts him preeminent. That puts him above everyone and everything to the degree that he could even say, admit I'm God. Don't just say I'm good. Say I'm good and I'm God. Because if you're with me, follow me. And if you're with me, you become joint heir with me, not of this world, but of the age to come and the life to come and the heavenly splendor, which is the thing that the apostles and the rich young ruler were all looking for. And the rich young ruler wanted it based on his works. What do I got to do to get there? And Jesus raised the level to impossibility. But the disciples did give up everything to follow him, made him the priority in their lives, which I don't think they had any choice in. Jesus imposed himself on them and effectively said, follow me, and they had no choice but follow. But then in this world, they're going to be provided for, they're going to be taken care of, and then they get the splendor of the world to come. They get the kingdom of heaven on top of that. And it's all based on where's your trust? Where's your faith? Where's your focus? Is it on you and your flesh and your works and your accumulation of stuff and your own authority? Or is it Christ? And if it is Christ and it is all Christ, then really who cares what happens in this world? You're part of the kingdom to come. And that is worth whatever it takes here and now. And yet in his grace... He gives you what you need here and now. And how does he do it? Through us, collectively. By expanding your family. By expanding the people who care about you. And that's a good deal. If in this life you know you can't fail because we'll catch you, we'll help, we'll feed you, we'll pick you up. If you know that in this lifetime there are people around you who love you enough that you can't fail and you have eternity, that's just a really, really good deal. That's grace and grace and grace and more grace. Any questions about that? Absolutely, yes. I don't know how else to expand on that. Yeah. If you're in Christ, this world is going to hate you because it hates him. So it's going to hate you without a cause. Persecutions are going to happen. Jesus said, you're in the world, but you're not of the world, for I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So from his own lips, he would say, yes, I'm going to provide for you, well, persecution's part of the package. So um, there are other scriptures that says the same thing. And it, it, it ties it into being saved, I think, or entering into the kingdom of heaven. So I'm kind of confused on, on that part because we don't we all don't get persecuted the way that we Is God sovereign? It's a yes or no question. Yeah. So God is sovereign. Can he do whatever he wants with what's his? Yeah. Can he save some people through fiery trials and save other people who don't go through the same fiery trials? Here, 
When was the last time you got thrown into a lion's den? That'd be never. Yeah. And so if Daniel had to go through a lion's den as part of his life experience and you didn't, which of you is more saved? You're equally saved. Okay. So, yes, God in his sovereignty can see to it that persecutions arise in some people's lives. When was the last time any of us collectively were forced to be crucified upside down? None of us have been. Peter was. So is Peter more saved than any of us? No, because God in his sovereignty can do whatever he wants with what's his. So rather than say, I'm not as persecuted as some other people are, therefore I question my level of either commitment or salvation or whatever else, I would turn that over completely to Christ and say, though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. But if he doesn't slay me, I still trust him. Does that make sense? I've been, I've had my fair share. (laughs) All right. Anything else? All right. We're good. All right. Then say goodbye to the internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.